Welcome to Grace. If y'all stay with us, we're going to sing out together. Um, this is kind of a newer song. We want to sing with y'all, but it just really reminds us of why we're here to uh, worship a mighty God. So let's sing out together.
heavens declare, sing it. heavens declare your glorious, glorious. Great is your fame beyond. Famous one, famous one, praise your name and all. 
sing with y'all and go ahead and take a seat. Good morning. Great to see everyone this morning. Please hear the word of the Lord from the book Jeremiah. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hands. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Let us pray. Father God, indeed, you are our God. We might have many choices in life, what to seek our help and our comfort, our aid, our security in, but you and you alone are our God, and we must be your people. We can choose many other directions, many other trivial things, fun things, good things, but if we substitute them for you, Father, then we go wrong. And we find that they fail us. Father, today, I pray that we would put our hearts and our minds, give them to you, bring them to you, that we would know indeed that you are our God and we are your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. desires.
Let's just sing that uh, chorus once together as a church. Uh, sing out these words that we should proclaim with our lives. Let's sing together. Jesus, Messiah, Blessed pray that you'll help us to God, preach that to ourselves, God, and remind ourselves that you are the Lord of all, God. God, give us hearts to follow you with all of what we have and, God, all the time that we have, our energies, God, we pray that you'll help us to give them all to you. God, help us to seek your heart, find the things that please you. And to do those things, God, we pray now that you'll help us to uh, hear your word, God, and to put into action, to love each other well, and to, to love this world, and uh, bring your truth to them. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning again. I'm excited to be back in Hebrews with you guys. Have y'all missed Hebrews over the last six weeks? Yeah? Very sad? Well, for those of you that are visitors, we've been studying Hebrews, took a little break for the holidays, and now we're picking back up in chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews chapter 8, uh, which is page uh, 1005 in the Black Bibles. You want to grab one of those under the chairs if you don't have one. Um, page 1005, Hebrews chapter 8, and we're really at kind of the climax point of the book. Uh, probably safe to say you hit that right in chapter 7 and now leading into chapter 8. So when we read 8, we'll probably read a little bit of 7 as well. But we, I just want to review kind of what we've been looking at with the series. In the series, we've called it a better Savior. And what we've seen is that the author to Hebrews is contrasting Jesus and the security and the safety and the salvation we have in Him and contrasting that with our desire to fall back to other things. Now, specifically in Hebrews, that's falling back to the Jewish religion. Uh, but you could fall back to anything, right? Anything that works for you in life, you can kind of fall back to that when things get difficult. You walk with Jesus, you know Jesus, you come to see him as your salvation, uh, and then life gets tough. And you might say, well, maybe I need to go back to the habits or to the uh, ways of security that I've leaned on in the past. And so that's going to be a struggle that any of us are going to have. That's going to be our fight for the rest of our Christian life is to continue to place our faith in Jesus and take our faith out of all those other things that we tend to trust in, whether it be relationships or uh, some kind of uh, bottle or medication, right, that we may use to make life feel a little better, or maybe entertainment, or maybe it's money and security. I, I don't know what it is that you 
personally struggle with, but that's going to be the human condition. We're all going to struggle with something that we want to trust in other than Jesus himself. While the author here is challenging us that Jesus is really the ultimate Savior. He's the best Savior there is. He's the only one that can save to the uttermost, is what he said uh, earlier, that he's the one that saves completely. And so they are especially tempted to fall back uh, in this book to their Old Testament ways, to their Jewish faith, because Jesus comes in fulfillment of that faith. So there's complete unity with the Old Testament. But even though there is complete unity, what the author is saying is, yes, there's unity, and yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of these things, but, but he's it. He's the point. So if you get rid of Jesus to go back to the things that pointed to him, you're missing the whole point, because he's the thing that everything in the Old Testament pointed us to. We use the word flannel graph, right? He's like, they're like signposts. All these things in the Old Testament were pointing us ahead to see Jesus as the fulfillment. And so don't miss him. Don't miss him. He is the main point, and that's what we'll read uh, this morning. I'm going to back up, and I want to read uh, real quickly just verse 22 from chapter 7. It's just the previous page there. Verse 22, chapter 7, and then we'll uh, jump into chapter 8. He says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Jesus is a different kind of priest, right? He is eternal. He is supernatural. And so he's different. He continues forever. Verse 25 says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When I fall back on relationships, or if I fall back on money, or if I fall back on uh, something to fill my stomach, that, that, may be save, that may save me for a little while, right? But he's saying here that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely. It says he always lives to make intercession for them. That's huge. He always lives to make intercession for them. He's there even now making intercession for us. Let's jump ahead then to chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. In chapter 7 it said he offered himself. So every priest has to have something to offer. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So again, a different administration, different law, different system here. He's not a Levitical priest. He's a priest in the order of, y'all remember? Melchizedek. There you go. You get $10 if you remember the funny name. All right. Not really. I don't, I don't have any money. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And that's what we're going to unfold today. That's a key verse, but it's a better covenant based on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless... There would have been no occasion to look for a second. Again, we saw that last time, six weeks ago in chapter 7, that, that this old system is now obsolete. And that may seem sacrilegious to those people who had been entrenched for thousands of years in that old system. But he's saying Jesus is the thing that we've been waiting for this whole time. 
Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We said before, this is the most common promise of the Old Testament. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities or their sins, and I'll remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would unpack this for us, that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand how you are the point, what your son Jesus did for us. Help us to unfold that. We pray that your spirit would apply it to us this morning, that we would understand who you are and what you've done for us, and that we would understand the incredible privilege we have of being brought before you. Help us not to turn back to old ways or old religions, Lord, but to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about this temptation to turn back to old religions and old ways, I was thinking about just all the varieties of religions there are. I don't know if you've studied religion much. I've done a lot of study of religion. Um, kind of a skeptical person myself, so really a part of my growth in faith was trying to understand Christianity in comparison to other religions. I spent a lot of time studying philosophy and studying other religions, and I thought, you know, it's been a few years since I've really looked into it a whole lot, so uh, why not just do a quick internet survey of what kind of new religions there are out there? Uh, I was Googling some different things and looked up a list of the 10 weirdest religions. I don't know who decides what makes them so weird. Um, but one of them I thought was really peculiar. It's what's called a cargo religion, which the idea is that when people bring cargo to a, uh, a people group that are primitive and haven't had contact with other people, that something in the cargo, maybe the nice stuff they have and the nice technology they have, kind of in a weird way matches up with some of their prophecies or some of their superstitions, and they have this melding of a new religion based on what they'd already thought before from their witch doctors and some of the trinkets that the people bring when they come into this place. And this is something that kind of has happened sometimes in remote islands. There's this one island in the South Pacific uh, that has this religion which is known as the uh, Prince Philip Movement. Are you all familiar with the Prince Philip Movement? Anyone? I don't know if I have any adherents here today. I don't want to offend you if you're here, so try to pick the most peculiar religion I could find so I didn't offend anybody. But um, in the Prince Philip Movement, what they have is they had this prophecy that said there was a pasty-skinned son of a mountain spirit, which, I was joking with my wife, sounds like an insult, right? So this pasty... <laughs> I guess I'm going to start calling people now. This pasty-skinned son of a mountain spirit who is supposed to go and marry an important woman and then come back and bring peace and prosperity to the village, right? It's kind of a prosperity gospel, really, um, which, you know, we have a lot of varieties of those here ourselves. But... So this promise, and then what happened is somewhere along the line, this kind of secluded people um, somehow came in contact with English people and somehow came in contact with Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, who happens to be pasty-skinned and, and married to a very important woman, right? So, so they added on the son of a mountain spirit part, I guess, and kind of put that together, and there you go. They've got this Messiah now, they believe, in Prince Philip, and now they're waiting for him 
to return. And you, you have this picture online, you can find this dude, you know, this like native guy with a painting, a portrait of Prince Philip. And it's very bizarre. And, and I think it just shows kind of the bizarre links that we will go to to find some kind of prosperity, right? Or some kind of fix for the brokenness that we live in. Now, a lot of us, we probably think, oh, I'm not dumb like that. You know, I go to the logical things like, like money and pleasure and relationships. And, you know, those common things that we go to. But the author of Hebrews is saying, none of those things really will bring you the ultimate prosperity that you're looking for. That, that when we go to our idols of, of money and relationships or whatever it may be for you, when we go to those, it's, we're just like uh, the ones that are following the pasty-skinned son of a mountain spirit, really. You know, I mean, it, we, it, we have about as much prosperity and promise and hope there as we do in, in what we go to. He's telling us that really the ultimate salvation, the ultimate security can only be found in Jesus, who brings us into the presence of God. He's talking about all this temple imagery and all these primitive religions. You know, there's a temple and these rituals where people are kind of brought before God. And what he's saying is, yeah, in Judaism, those things were right and true and that they pointed to the greater reality. But now the reality is found in Jesus. You can't go back to the pointers anymore. You have to trust in the reality that is Jesus himself. He is the guarantor of a better covenant, as it says in chapter 7, verse 22. So the first thing that he says in this argument fixates on Jesus as the leader of this better covenant. So we have a better covenant, right, in Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to see is that he gives us better covenant leadership, right? And this fits in with the kind of the train of thought that Hebrews has been going through. Again, just to review the last seven chapters, right? We spent a whole semester on it. And what we saw is that Jesus is in contrast to the leadership that we might get from angelic beings or the leadership we might get from Moses or the leadership we might get from Joshua or the leadership we might get from Aaron as the priest. And so Jesus is a better fulfillment of all of those things. He comes in the order of Melchizedek, who is both priest and king, not just one or the other. And so he's a better fulfillment of all these previous offices. He is the ultimate leader. He is the only one that can bring us to God. All those other human leaders, all those other covenant administrators, right? They all failed. All those other leaders failed us. If you're reading through the Bible with us right now in the Bible reading plan, what you'll find is a story of human failure. Again and again, humans failing to live up to our potential. Now, I try to always take people serious when they have uh, doubts about the Christian faith. Because as I said, I was really somewhat of a skeptic too, both before I came to faith and while I was uh, really young in my faith as well. But sometimes I, I get frustrated with this one uh, objection that is, well, look at all the evil in the world. Well, well, I think the evil in the world is our fault, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't love my kids and my wife every day the way I should. I don't, I don't know if you do. Now, if you did, that would be a good objection for you, right? If you were perfect and you never failed, that'd be a great objection. Well, God can't be real because there's evil in the world. Well, well, you're the problem, okay? I mean, that, that, that objection I don't think works very well. We are all the problem. We are the reason for evil in the world. And you, you only have to look at yourself to know that that's true. Well, here we have a different leader, an ev- a leader that doesn't fall short, a leader that's not evil, but a leader that's perfect and actually brings us in. In verse 1, he says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Chapter 7, we said he said he offers himself. In verse 27 of chapter 7, it says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. So he offers himself. That is the crux of Christianity. And verse 1 says, this is the point of what we are saying. I, I joked with the earlier service, the complex Greek linguistics here means this is the point of what we are saying. That's what it means when you read that in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That, that's what he's trying to say. There's, not, there's nothing hidden in the Greek translation. He's saying this is the main point. Pay attention, right? If I say sometimes, and I think I've said this even recently, maybe, if I say in a sermon, if you don't hear anything else I, I say, make sure you hear this one point. That, that's basically what he's doing here. He's saying if you miss everything else that we've talked about, about Joshua and Moses and Aaron and all the stuff in Hebrews, make sure you get this, this one point. We have such a high priest in Jesus. One who, as it says in chapter 7, offered himself. One who, as it says, brings us into the very presence of God. So this is the hope that we have. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We talked back in chapter 1, again many weeks ago, that being seated at the right hand of the throne means being on the throne, sharing the throne with God himself. And we have this as an expression of the Trinity, right? That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That it is one God. He shares his godness, but three people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or three persons is usually the language used there. It says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So this priest, Jesus, has something to offer, and that something is himself. I have a uh, picture here to help us think about this leadership, this main point thing that he's talking about here. I don't know if we have any deacons. I see people, like, about to pass out. You might want to turn the air on if we have any deacons here. I know I'm about to pass out. Um, I shouldn't have worn a sweater. I knew that was a mistake. This is a picture of a wedding, right? How many of you have ever attended a wedding? Anybody here ever attended a wedding? All right, good. A few of you. That's good. All right. Very good. So you'll relate to this. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm like losing my concentration. So if you've ever been to a, uh, a wedding, sometimes you might dress up. Like I get to perform a lot of weddings, and I've kind of had this on my mind because just last week, like in one day, three different people asked me to perform a wedding for them over the next six months. Uh, and so I'm just kind of like wedding full in my brain. And when I perform a wedding, I usually wear a suit, which you've never seen me in. And so I get a little, I'm a little uncomfortable, right? So I can, I can be a little, you know, squirmy and like wondering how I look and kind of concerned about my appearance. But, but people aren't there at the wedding to see me, right? Like I'm not the point of the wedding, right? You, you, ladies, you may go to a wedding and you may buy a new dress to go attend this wedding, and you may be kind of thinking, oh, I wonder how I look, and I wonder if the people think I look nice, but, but again, you're not, you're not really the point, right? The, the point is the bride and the groom. What, what do people do when the, groom, or when the bride walks in? They stand up. What else do they do? They turn around, right? They look at the bride as she's coming down the aisle. That she, she becomes, everybody becomes fixated on her because she is the point, and as she comes forward, then she's given away to the groom and then vows are made and her love for the groom and the groom's love for her is the point. And what's really cool is the Bible says that, that this love that a man has for a woman, right, that makes us crazy and will pursue a woman and do things like 
tuck in our shirt and wash our face. You know, I mean, just all these crazy things that happen when a man loves a woman and will pursue her. That's a picture of God's love for us. And so in a wedding, it's this beautiful picture of God and his glory and his love and his beauty and this relationship. And and they're the point. Their love for each other is the point. Their love for each other at a human level, and then that same point reflects on God and his love for us. And what we're seeing here in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, this is the point. Jesus is it. He is the point. His love for us, and because of that, our love for him, that's the whole point. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. you got a mediator who always lives to make intercession for you. You have a mediator who has entered into the holy place and brings you with him. He always stands in the gap for you. So when you get up tomorrow and you you sleep late and you don't read your Bible and you're thinking, oh no, I'm going to get kicked out of the church now because I didn't read my Bible. Well, Jesus is always standing to make intercession for you. And for you new people, you won't get kicked out of the church if you forget to read. That's okay. Um, But the the point is that, that we often lay on ourselves these burdens, these religious things, these duties that we want to do and think that our relationship is based on those things. And the new covenant says, no, your relationship with God is based on Jesus. He brings you in to the presence of God, not the things you do. Now you do things in the Christian life. We're going to be calling you this year to do things, right? We're going to be calling you to join in community with each other partner with other people, to help us financially support the goals of the ministry here. We're going to ask you to to give of your time, right, to serve. And we're going to challenge you to do things, but only because of what Jesus has done for you. We're never going to challenge you and say, well, you know what? God's going to be disappointed in you if you don't uh, give enough money, or God's going to be disappointed if you don't join a small group. We're never going to lay your relationship on God with God on the line, right? Jesus is what gives you that relationship. Jesus is what fulfills the covenant for you. He's what brings you into the very presence of God. The only reason we can even praise him is because of what Jesus has done. He is the ultimate point. He is the thing that brings us in. And I believe that we have to remember that. There's this kind of drumbeat again and again throughout Hebrews that keeps challenging us to hold fast to that confession of faith, right? To continue to trust in Jesus as the leader, as the apostle and high priest of our confession, as the one that can get the job done. Continue to trust in him. Don't look for other leaders. Don't look for other people, for other things to bring you into paradise, to bring you into the way things should be. But the scriptures say that only Jesus can bring you into the very presence of God. The next thing that we see is really an, uh, a development of this leadership idea. It's, it's administration is the word that I use for this. It's better covenant administration. And the term administration, I think, is just kind of how all the pieces work together. That's kind of, I'm kind of using like a, a junk drawer term to kind of tie all this stuff together. But the actual uh, mechanics of how this religion and how our faith and how this relationship unfolds and the rituals and the worship and all this, it, it's better in the new covenant than it was in any other covenant before. He says in verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So again, from chapter 7, there's this law, there's this other system, there's this other priesthood, all these details, right? You're gonna, I mean, you read Leviticus, there's all kinds of details and blood and specifics and, and the way things that need to be unfolded. And he's saying, that's set. And, and you can't change that, but 
but by changing the system itself. Verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, uh, the other word used often is tabernacle, right? It was this tent where they worshipped God that became later the stone temple. It says, He was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This word pattern is uh, the Greek word tupas. We, we get the word type from that. And so a type is used when one thing reflects another thing, right? That's a type. And it's really a systematic theology word when you talk about uh, things in the Old Testament that are types of Christ, right? Romans 5 says that Adam was a type of Christ. As a representative of the entire human race, he was a type, a pattern that Christ then later fulfills. But Christ fulfills it better, right? Because Adam was a representative of all of us in our sin, and now Jesus is a representative of all of us in life and righteousness, right? And so there's other types like that as well. And this, uses, this word is used in other ways as well, just to really be like a blueprint or a pattern or a model that something else is modeled after. And it says that when Moses was told in Exodus, I think it's 2540 in, in Exodus, where he's told how to build the tabernacle or the tent of worship, He's told to do it exactly like the pattern that he was shown. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to us here is that there's a, a real place of worship in heaven. And Moses was somehow given a vision of that and told to copy that. And so what we have, again, is this just copy, right? We just have this sketch in the Old Testament worship. Again, it's not wrong. It's not bad. The message of Hebrews has been again and again that we are worshiping in perfect unity with the Old Testament. We're not throwing out the Old Testament. We're saying we now have the real thing. Instead of just the copy, what he says here, the shadow, the copy, we have the real thing itself in Jesus. I have a picture here of blueprints. Ladies, I know ladies, this, this hits uh, strong. Ladies tend to have this, this nesting instinct. W would you rather have uh, blueprints or a home? W what would be your pre preference? Right? I think, I think most ladies would rather have the home, right? Here's, here's the blueprints. Here's the design. Here's the sketch of what it could be. And then here's a picture of a, a set table, right? With food and glasses and uh, a place where you can gather and you can laugh together and you can build happy memories and you can have that perfect fantasy family, right? All those things that you want, you can do that a lot better in an actual home than in a sketch on a piece of paper, right? And that's what he's saying here. In the Old Testament, those things are good, right? I mean, to go back to the uh, sketch, now a sketch is better than nothing, right? If you're homeless and someone says, well, here's a sketch, I'm going to build your house, you'd be pretty excited about the sketch, wouldn't you? And that's what we had in the Old Testament. They had, here's this, this concept, you can have a relationship with God. And here's what has to take place. Some sacrifice needs to take place. And a substitute needs to stand in for you to bring you to God. And so faith was there in the Old Testament. They were able to have a primitive faith that God is going to somehow bring us into our presence. Or into His presence, right? He's going to somehow reconcile us to Him. And so the sketch is good and it's better than nothing. But what the author is saying here is that now you have the real thing, right? Now you have the home. Now you can actually be in the presence of God through Jesus Christ and what He's doing. It's a different administration. Well, the last thing that we see is that because of this, because of this change in administration, because of Jesus and what he's doing, we actually have better covenant results. The result is different, right? There's, there's two different ways to live when it comes to religion. There's one way where you kind of try to force it from the outside in, 
right? Kind of like how we do as parents, right? You're trying to teach your kids to obey, right? And cram goodness into them somehow through training or whatever other things you can do. And then there's this other supernatural thing that's described here of this inside out transformation where God actually changes our hearts. And it's by faith. We receive by faith what God has done for us through Jesus, bringing us into the presence of God. And that begins to actually have some different results in our life. And he talks about this is really the crux of the matter between the old and new covenant. Uh, We see this in uh, picking up in verse 8. We'll start looking at this new covenant. Now, this is the, uh, the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And I'm not sure why that matters. It's just something I read in a book. But anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know why I even said that. Sometimes you just throw out these facts you read. I read that somewhere. Okay. So anyway, this is a long quote from Jeremiah 31. He says, For he finds fault with them when he says, now quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, quick stop. If you come from a hyper-dispensationalist background, uh, and if you don't know what that is, you don't have to listen here for the next two minutes. But if you come from that kind of background, uh, a lot would say that, that this is only for ethnic Israel, ethnic Judah, right? He says, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so there's a way of, of interpreting that scripture-wise where you say, well, when it says Israel, it means Israel, and so it's, it's not for us, right? I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm Irish, so it can't be for me, right? <laughs> but, but what he's saying here is this new work that God is doing in the world, and all the promises we have in the Old Testament are that Israel would be the salvation for the whole world. But Israel failed, and Jesus, an Israelite, succeeded. And so all of us who are, you know, from whatever Druid tribe you came from that are now believers in the Hebrew God... We have found salvation through Israel, through Jesus, the first true Israelite. The first Israelite that kept the covenant was Jesus. And so we find salvation through him. So this covenant made with Israel and Judah, it applies to us as well. 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul makes it clear when he's talking to the church and he's talking to pagans in Corinth, that he's talking about the new covenant. And in Luke 22 also, Jesus talks about his death. And resurrection is the fulfillment of the new covenant, right? We always quote that from 1 Corinthians 11 when we have communion, remembering that, that his blood is, is the sealing, right? The sign of this new covenant that we have with God. So verse 9, it says, It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not like that covenant on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So we have a lot of covenants in the Old Testament. And I don't think I ever de- defined covenant. Did I even define it today? Covenant just basically means an agreement, right? A covenant is just an agreement. In the Old Testament, we have all these different covenants where God makes promises and people make promises to God. So it's basically an an agreement, sort of like a contract with more significant, intimate uh, intimate kind of uh, concerns involved, right? It's something, you know, it's not less than a contract, but it's definitely more than a contract. It's something more significant than that, but basically an agreement or a promise between two parties. And there are a lot of covenants in the Old Testament. Most people would would cite where the word is used with Noah and with Moses and with David, right? These are specific places where the word covenant is used. So we talk about the Noahic covenant and the Mosaic covenant for Moses and the Davidic covenant for David. Uh, Most would also, many theologians would also cite the Adamic covenant with Adam or the creation covenant. The word covenant's not used, but there's an agreement there, right? Where he says, all right, multiply goodness throughout the world and everything's going to be great. Uh, just don't eat this tree, and they 
break that agreement, right? They break that covenant. And so most would say we're still kind of reeling as humanity because of the breaking of that covenant. But God promises that he's going to fix things. And there's also Abrahamic. I forgot about Abrahamic as well. So right with Abraham, there's the Abrahamic covenant. So in the Old Testament, there's these different covenants that are made, these promises that God makes, these promises that his people make. And he's talking about a specific one here in verse 9, right? He says, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So if you know your Old Testament history, which covenant is this when they were taken out of the land of Egypt? That's right. The murmur, murmur covenant. That's right. Very good. Moses, right? Moses was the dude that took them out of Egypt. And so he makes this covenant with them. So we refer to that as the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant because of Mount Sinai and the law being given from Mount Sinai. So we have this covenant specifically that he's referencing. Now, I think it has broader implications to all external religion, right? Because he's talking, again, this difference between inside-out religion and outside-in religion. But here specifically, he's referencing the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, this is what's wrong with it. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the problem with the covenant, he says, I found fault with covenant earlier in verse 8. He found fault with it. The, The fault with the covenant, the problem with the covenant, again, was the people. The people were the problem. We're the problem with these broken covenants. When we look back at the Adamic covenant, the covenant in creation, the the failure that Adam made is just a reflection of the failure that we make every day. And and we've all failed to fulfill these covenants. But God says, I'm going to come fulfill it for you. In the Mosaic covenant, he makes these promises, right? He says in Exodus 20, if if you fulfill these things, you're going to be like a treasured possession, right? We, We know, we just know because of the way God's wired the universe, that if we actually lived righteously, things would be awesome, wouldn't they? Life would be good. And sadly, that's what a lot of churches and religions and clubs teach. They just teach that part, which is true, right? If you live perfectly, you'll be a happier person. I mean, it's kind of common sense, isn't it? If I were to do everything right, my life would be better. But, but the problem is we can't do it. We, we fail. We get up every morning and we fail again and we make a good run at it. And wow, I did a lot of things good today, but I haven't done everything Perfectly, And that's the difference in this covenant, is that Jesus fulfills it for us. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's how it works. By God being merciful. By God forgiving our sins. Iniquities is just a big word for sins, right? He's forgiving our sins. He's being merciful towards our iniquities. He's saying that's how it will become an inside-out covenant. Instead of people trying to force it, right? Instead of me going, know the Lord, right? That, That could be one method. I could just grab each one of you and shake you. And say, know the Lord, right? And that generally, that's kind of the history of religion in our world. We, you know, we use different terms, right? If you're new age, you say, know that you are the Lord. And, and if you're, you know, from some other religion, you might say, be perfect so that you can know the Lord. And you might phrase it in different ways, but they're all external ways of trying to force it in. And God said, I'm, I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to plant it inside people. I'm going to write it on their minds and on their hearts. Again, 
the differences between Old and New Covenant are not in the righteousness. Because he's saying, I'm going to write my law on their minds and hearts. So instead of the law that he carved into the Ten Commandments, stones, right? He's going to carve that into us, into our soul. So it's the same righteousness. It's the same standards, but it's administered differently. And there are different results. We actually want what is good. Now, I have a picture here of, uh, I don't know if you can tell what that is. This is one of my first jobs. Actually, I think it was the second job I had out of high school when I was in college was a telemarketer. So hopefully you won't quit the church now that you know I used to be a, uh, a telemarketer. I think in God's sovereignty, he actually gave me this terrible job to prepare me to someday be a preacher. I've told you all I'm really a very shy person. Like I'm very shy, don't really like to reach out to people. And so uh, for two years, calling people and being cursed out and hung up on helped me to kind of build a thicker skin a little bit. So that was... That was good, but I think, I think part of that was just an aside. That was for free, but, but I think why we don't like telemarketers is because they're trying to force us to do something we don't want, right? No, I don't want it. Leave me alone, right? And that, again, is what religion tends to be. It's we're trying to force something. We're trying to sell something. We're trying to cram it into people. But here he's saying that this covenant is different. It's not a forced covenant from the outside in, but this is a covenant of faith. And the members of this covenant are not going to be talking each other into knowing God. Because you can't be in this covenant unless you know God. And I've talked about what that looks like. This causes confusion in our church, right? Because people tell me that they want to be members. And I'm not trying to criticize churches that have a better membership process. We're, we're honestly trying to get better at this. We're trying to make it more clear. But at this point, when you read our our membership statement in our Constitution, it says the only way you can really be a member of our church is to believe in Jesus and to know him and to be a member of his covenant. And then if you show up here, you're a member, right? So, so if you walk alongside with us, and it's a, it's a little more than that. I'm exaggerating for a fact. It, you know, if you partner with us, you're a member. But, but we don't have you sign something and say, yes, I swear I'll be a member. It, it's your relationship with Jesus is, is the core. It's the crux of this issue. This is reflected in some different denominations in the way they administrate uh, their membership. Um, for a lot of people, baptism, right, is the sign of, of faith in Christ. And we would teach that, that it is that sign, that's the sign. And so at this church, we just give that sign to people who profess faith. And we would say, okay, now that you profess faith and you're saying that his law has been written on your minds and your hearts and you love him and he's transforming you from the inside out, then we will. Uh, encourage you to be baptized and to express that then on the outside. Now, other denominations will baptize children This, because of this view of the covenant, but it's a covenant not just for uh, believers and their family, but it's really just a covenant for believers. That's why we do baptism that way. But the other side of it, we kind of split the difference here. We're not going to force you to be rebaptized. Some of you have been baptized as children. You were in a church that, you know, that counted membership according to uh, faith and the children of people who had faith. And so you're baptized as a baby. We're not going to give, try to force you to be rebaptized. We would teach that that's the appropriate time for baptism. But again, we would make membership based on your faith. That this is a covenant for people who believe. It's not this mixed nation. It's not this mixed people of some who believe and some who don't believe. But all who are really members of Christ, all who are really members of his body are those who know him and know what he's done for them and 
those who have been brought into the presence of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm sure I confused a lot of you, and I'd be glad to uh, answer questions about that after the service. But I want to emphasize again verse 11 and 12. I think verse 11 and 12 says this the best. It says in verse 11, well, yeah, back up the beginning of verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. So there's not like uh, the good people in our church and the bad people, the losers, and then the people that we really like, right? Because, now here, well, here are the people that give this much, and then here are the people uh, that spend this much time in service. But what it's saying here is that you're a member because of Christ. Again, not because of how you express that faith, but because of the faith in who he is and what he's done for you, that he brings you. So there's from the least to the greatest, from the people that are impressive to the people that are not so impressive, they're all impressive to God. They've all been adopted because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So there's not classes here of stratus of different kinds of people. And here's the more impressive people, and here's the least, and here's the greatest. He's saying they all know him from the least to the greatest. He says, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. One of the things that we say quite a bit is one of the uh, qualifications for membership here is you have to be a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you're not welcome here. I'm sorry. Well, you're welcome here, but until we can convince you otherwise that you really are a sinner, right? That, that's what you need to become a member. You have to recognize that you're a sinner. In First John, he says there's two kinds of people. There's the people that confess their sins and Jesus forgives them. And then there's the people that lie and are like, I'm good. I don't need any help. I'm fine. I'm not a sinner. And so we would say to be a member, to be a part of this covenant, you have to recognize that you're a sinner and that he forgives your sins, that he's merciful to your iniquities is the language that he uses there. Well, in conclusion, uh, we've got verse 13, which is interesting because it seems, to me anyway, it seems like kind of a contrast with what's going on in the rest of the book. In verse 13, he says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now this... Again, it, it makes good sense when we're just talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. And now we have this true relationship with him. But the confusing part is in Christianity, just, just imagine if you were living in the first century and people asked you, well, well, where's your priest? Well, he's in heaven. Well, where's your temple? Well, it's in heaven. You know, I mean, like you're, you're starting to go, well, where, where's the religion, right? It seems like the externals have all vanished. And what I want to remind you of is that the externals are still here. There still is visible worship. There still is practices, right? We should still, as we talked about last week, we should still pray. And we should still um, meditate and, and read scripture like we're challenging you to do. And we should still fast. And we should still give money and give, give to the poor. And we should still do these religious things. Things, right? But we do them because Jesus has planted faith in us. Don't ever do them in order to earn the approval of God. Don't ever do them to try to impress each other, as it talks about with the Pharisees in Matthew 6. But do them because of what Jesus has done for you. Because Jesus has brought you into the presence of God, you want to be generous. Because Jesus has brought you into the presence of God, you want to love other people. Love doesn't make sense apart from the love of Jesus. If Jesus doesn't love us, we should follow what Nietzsche says and do our own thing. That, that's the other logical option. 
right? He says in chapter 10, later on, he gives us a challenge of what this should look like, right? If Jesus is really it, if Jesus has fulfilled all of these things and we can put behind us our religions and our external worship of the past, then what does that look like? He says in chapter 10, 26, or excuse me, chapter 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying again, okay, because Jesus is who he is, let us draw near. Let us approach God. Walk in intimacy with God. In 2011, walk closely with your father. Talk to him. Pray to him. Interact with him. Live that out in your life. Draw near to God. And then in verse 23, it goes on. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This looks like something. Throughout Hebrews, he said, draw near, hold fast, believe. Don't slide back to these other things. Trust him, listen, obey his voice. Don't harden your hearts and turn back to your flesh, but trust in God. And he's saying this again and again and again and again, and he builds up to chapter 10 and he says, this looks like something. It looks like you're actually encouraging each other then, gathering in community. It, it's still a religion in that sense. We still will do religious things. We will still encourage each other, but we do it because of what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. He brings us in. He always lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand all that you've accomplished through your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has brought us into your presence. When we think of all the ways that we try to climb into your presence, every mountain that we try to scale. And we are thankful, Lord, as we slide down the sides. We're thankful that Jesus brings us there. Thank you that you gave your son Jesus to live a perfect life in our place and to die the death, to take the penalty of our sin, to be that sacrifice that he offered himself. God, I pray that we would trust in that and that it would make us live differently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.